The Iliad by Homer. Adapted and read to you by George Weedman with music and sound effects from Epidemic Sound. Book One. It is the ninth year of the Trojan War, an expedition the Achaeans have assembled to rescue Helen, a stolen princess. They've raided a nearby town and are returning to their ships with the spoils when our narrator appeals to the muses. Sing. Sing to me, O muse, sing to me of the wrath of Peleus' son Achilles and the pains thousandfold it wrought upon the Achaeans, hurling down to the house of Hades so many great souls, fighters' souls, heroes' souls, who became feasts for the dogs and birds. Begin, Muse, as the plans of Zeus were being fulfilled, when those first two broke and clashed in bitter conflict. Agamemnon, lord of men, against brilliant Achilles. Sing to me, Muse, of what god it was who drove hatred between them. Zeus's son, Apollo, lord of archery and of the sun who in anger at King Agamemnon drove a foul pestilence among his camp, and the soldiers died, since Agamemnon, son of Atreus, dishonored a priest of Apollo. It was Chryses, an old man, who came beside the fast ships of the Achaeans to ransom back his daughter, bringing gifts beyond measure, and a golden staff wound with the wreath of Apollo, making his plea to the two sons of Atreus, the field marshals of the camp, King Agamemnon and King Menelaus. Agamemnon, Menelaus, all oh, you well-grieved Achaeans. May the gods who have their homes on Olympus bless you to sack King Priam's city of Troy and then come back home safely. Just please release my dear daughter. Accept these gifts as ransom. Honor the god Apollo, the distant deadly archer, the son of Zeus. The Achaean soldiers spoke together in agreement to respect Apollo's priest and accept the splendid gifts. Yet Atreus' son Agamemnon's angry, proud heart remained repulsed, and he turned his back and drove a brutal refusal into the old man's ears. No! Never let me find you again near our beached vessels, old man. Not loitering now, nor crawling back tomorrow. Your staff and that wreath and those prayers afford you no protection from us. The girl? I won't give up the girl. Long before I ever do, she'll die of old age in my house, far from her native home and her weeping sire, forced to share my bed. Now go, don't tempt my wrath any further, and we may let you leave alive. So he spoke, and the old man was terrified and obeyed. Silently he walked along the shore of the thunderous sea, where the battle lines of breakers crash and drag, and once at a safe distance, over and over, he begged to afford protection from Apollo through one of those prayers. Long and deeply, over and over, he said again and again, Hear me, Apollo, lord of all the sources of light, son of Zeus and lord of the sun, protector of Chryses and Phoebe, ye are one. If ever with ivy I fed your sacred flame, of all the bulls and oxen for you I've slain, god of the silver bow, thy shafts employ, use your arrows and the Achaeans destroy. So he spoke in prayer, and Phoebus Apollo heard, 
Down, fiercely down from the peaks of Olympus he came, anger in his heart, silver hooded quivers slung past his shoulders, and the silver shafts clashing as the god quaked in rage. Arriving at the Achaeans, at nightfall away from ships he sat and let fly. He twanged his deadly bow, and hissing feathers flew. On mules the infection first began, then on dogs the arrows ran. And later he aimed into the soldiers, the piercing shafts entering the men, phlegm and vomit and the final breath of death exiting the men. Day in, day out, the clustering corpse fires flared. Nine days the arrows swept up and down the host, and on the tenth Achilles came to the Achaeans to assembly, an impulse put into his mind by white-armed Hera, the goddess, since she felt pity when she saw these Danaeans dying. Now when they were all assembled, Achilles of the swift feet stood up and spoke. Son of Atreus, we have been beaten back. I fear our long campaign is lost, forcing us back home even if we should escape with our lives, if indeed war and plague likewise are fighting us together. Come then, let us ask a prophet, a holy man, or a diviner, or even one of those who reads dreams, since dreams come from Zeus, who may might well tell us why Phoebus Apollo is so angry. Whether we missed a vow or sacrificed not enough oxen, maybe through the smoke of lambs or he-goats instead, he might somehow be made willing to beat the bane of this plague from us. He spoke, and thus sat down again, and among them stood up Calchas, Thester's son, the most intelligent man who interprets the flying of birds. Calchas knew all things that were, all things to come, and all things past. Calchas knew how to bring the wind that sailed the Achaeans' fleet to Troy, through the art of divining that Phoebus Apollo gave to him. He stood and spoke with kind intention. Ah, Achilles, dear to Zeus, you bid me to explain the reason for the anger of my lord Apollo, the deadly archer who strikes from afar. I could tell you, but you must agree, no, you must swear by your word and your hand to protect me, for I think I shall anger a powerful man who holds rule over us Argives. All the men of the Achaeans obey him. He is a mighty king who will have the upper hand when enraged by a commoner. Even if he swallows his wrath on that day, he may still nurse hatred for me after, in his heart of hearts, until he finally sees it fulfilled. Tell me then, will you swear to protect me? Then Achilles of the Swift Feet spoke in reassurance. Have no fear, speak of your oracles, tell us what you know that the god is telling you, for I swear by Apollo, son of Zeus, the very power you pray to, Calchas, that when you reveal the god's will, no one, not no one while I am alive and see light on earth, will lay his heavy hands on you beside the hollow ships. Not one of the Danaeans, not even if it's Agamemnon, you mean, he who now claims to be by far the highest of the Achaeans. And so Calchas grew courage and spoke out. Well then... It is not for a missed vow or forgotten sacrifice that he blames us, but for the sake of that priest who Agamemnon dishonored, the one who begged for his daughter to accept ransom. It's from them that the grief of the deadly archer came to inflict and will inflict. No way will he free the Danaeans from his loathsome havoc, not until we give back her father, the quick-eyed girl. No ransom, no price. And take to crises a rich, holy sacrifice of our own. That is going to be the only way we might appease and persuade Apollo." Calchas spoke, and thus sat down again, and up stood Agamemnon, the heroic son of Atreus, raging, his heart filling black to the brim with anger from beneath, his two eyes shining with a semblance of searing fire. With a killing look, he glared at Calchas. 
Fraudulent prophet, not once of your prophecies pleased me. You enjoy foreseeing disaster. Nothing good have you ever foretold will come to pass. Only evil futures are dear to your heart, and now you peddle your claims to the Danaean Assembly? Alleging that the deadly archer Apollo laid on to us griefs because I was unwilling to accept ransom for that girl Chryseis? I rank her higher than Clytemnestra, my wedded wife. She's in no way inferior, not in build, nor stature, nor wit, nor accomplishment. Uh, but I am willing to give her back if that is the best for us all. What I really want is to keep my people safe and not see them dying. But fetch me another prize, so I'm not the only Argive here left without one single piece of our own plunder. My honor has been insulted in front of all of you, for all of you to see my prize going elsewhere. Then in answer spoke Achilles of the swift feet. Just how, most glorious Agamemnon, most covetous of men, most grasping man alive, just how can the great-hearted Achaeans produce you a prize? I know of no troves of treasure we're keeping lying around, no stores of goods idling about. What we've plundered from the towns has already been portioned out. For you to recall it all and collect it back, that would be an insult to the honor of every single man here. So return the girl for now. Us soldiers will repay you thrice and four times over if Zeus grants us victory over Ilium, the strong-walled citadel of Troy. Answering him, then Lord Agamemnon declared, A fine warrior you may be, godlike Achilles, but don't play tricks on me. You'll not rob me of my soldiers' right, not with tricks nor persuasion. What do you want? To keep your own prize and leave me lacking? Are you ordering me to give back the girl? First, let me get a new prize from the great-hearted Achaeans, something of equal value to my loss. And if no one does, I will take it myself. Perhaps the prize of Ajax, or that of Odysseus, or maybe your own prize, Achilles. But these matters, though, we can deliberate over later. Come now, let us haul down a black ship to the bright sea and assemble oarsmen and place oxen on board for sacrifice, along with Chryses' fair-cheeked daughter and all her beauty. Let one of our leading men go as captain and counselor to sacrifice to the great god the archer, Aeus, or Domineus, or noble Odysseus, or you, son of Peleus, Achilles, the most terrifying of all my men. Glancing at him darkly, Achilles of the swift feet spoke. You, armored with shamelessness, your mind obsessed with profit, how could any of your men be convinced to obey your orders, to march into war and face mighty men in battle? I did not come here to fight Trojan men, why should I fight them? The Trojans have never wronged me, the Trojans have never driven off my cattle or horses, never in my rich soiled homeland did the Trojans come and lay waste to my harvest, since such great distance lies between us and them, shadowy mountains and echoing seas. But no such distance between you and me, you shameless hulk. We accompanied you for your pleasure, for the honor of your brother Menelaus, and for the honor of you, dog face. 
and all those things you care nothing for, and now my prize you threaten? After me and my men and the sons of the Achaeans suffered so much, never do I receive a prize equal to yours. Whenever we waste one wealthy Trojan stronghold or another, it's my arms to bear the brunt of raw savage fighting, and when it comes to dividing up the plunder, the lion's share is always yours, and back I go to my ships, clutching some scrap, a pittance that I love, over which I fight to exhaustion. No more, back home I go to Pahia. Better by far to sail my beat ships home than stay here without honor, earning you your wealth. Then in answer to him, in turn, said Lord Agamemnon, Run away and desert, if that's what your heart desires. I won't beg you to stay for my own sake. With me or many others who will do me honor, Zeus above all, whose counsel rules the whole world. You, you were just the most hateful of all the heroes loved by the gods. You live to quarrel and fight. You live for strife in this bloody grind of war, all because the gods decided to give you your great strength and overweening anger. Go home with your ships and your myrmidons. I care nothing about you or them. Your anger means nothing to me. But here is my threat to you. Since Apollo will take from me my Chryseis, and since I will take her back on a ship of my own, I shall take from you your fair-cheeked Briseis, your prize. I'll go to your hut myself and take her, so that other men may shrink when trying to match with me. So he spoke, and a pain seized the shaggy breast of Achilles' heart, pounding, torn. Should he draw his long, sharp sword slung at his hip, rush through the crowd and kill the son of Atreus? or swallow his bitter gall and restrain his passion. As his spirit raced back and forth debating wrath versus reason, Athena came down from the heavens dispatched by Hera of the White Arms, who loved and cared for both men equally. Standing behind him, she grabbed the fair hair of the son of Peleus, appearing to him alone. None of the other fighters saw her as they were frozen still. Achilles turned around in amazement, instantly recognized Pallas Athena, terrible, radiant flames in her eyes, and uttering winged words, he addressed her. Why? Why now? Why have you come this time, child of Zeus, to witness the arrogant gall of Atreus' son Agamemnon? For I tell you, and I think this will come about, through his conduct he may well soon lose his life. To him spoke in answer the goddess gray-eyed Athena. Calm your fury, leave it to the gods to resign. To reason yield the empire of your mind. You and the king both are under care of heaven, and by my word let this command be given. Sheath your revenging steel, soon your honor the king will feel. For I pronounce as a heavenly power, your injured honor will have its hour. Of glittering gifts from a boundless store, bribe him of his friendship, us gods implore. Let revenge no longer bear thy way. Command thy passions, and the gods obey. Then in answer, swift-foot Achilles spoke. I must respect the words of you both, goddess, as angry in my heart though I am. It is better by far to obey, for if a man obeys the gods, they too listen to his prayers. He spoke, and laid his heavy hand onto the silver sword hilt, and thrust the great blade back into its sheath. But Achilles was not through with his words of strong contempt, his anger not yet ended at Agamemnon, son of Atreus. 
You wine-sacked, dog-faced, fawn-hearted, not once have you dared to fight alongside your troops in battle or join them in ambush with the Achaian chieftains. No, for you fear the risk of death. You lack courage. Far safer in your mind is it to take back the gifts of whoever speaks against you. You king who feeds on your own people, you rule worthless husks of men. For if it weren't for this... This would have been your last outrage. This, I tell you, this scepter of yours that the sons of the Achaeans carry when we administer the justice of Zeus, by it I swear a great oath to you that some day a yearning for Achilles will strike Achaia's sons and all your armies. And for all your grief, you will be able to do nothing. As their numbers drop and die before the Trojans, then, then you will eat your heart out from within you, raging that you dishonored the best of the Achaeans. So spoke the son of Peleus, and he dashed to the ground the scepter studded with bright golden nails. But Agamemnon still smoldered on the other side, until wise old Nestor, the persuasive elder of Pylos, sat up from his chair to calm their passions with words of age, words whose stream ran sweeter than honey. In his old age he had seen two generations of men live and die, and in his realm of Pylos he now ruled over a third. Oh, me... No more, have some shame, listen to old Nestor... You are too young, and in my time I struck up with better men than you two. Men like Periothos and Dryas, the fine captain, Caenus and Exadius, and the legendary Polythemus and Theseus, they could match the immortals. Those were the strongest generation of men ever bred on earth, and we fought against the strongest too. We fought beastly men, we fought centaurs, it was terrible, deadly work. I was in a company of those men, coming a long way from Pylos, and I fought with my lance using only one hand. None of the men who walk on earth these days could match us, none. But they still took to my counsel, they still marked my words, so you listen too. Yielding is far better. Don't steal the girl, Agamemnon, as great as you are. And you, Achilles, don't challenge a king. Zeus is the one who gives power to kings, as strong as you may be, the son of an immortal you may be, but he has more power because he rules over more subjects. And Agamemnon, give up your anger. For the Achaeans, Achilles is your bulwark against the defeat of war. Then in answer, Agamemnon spoke in haste. True, old man, what you say is true and fair, but look at him. He wants to be above all others and wants to dominate all, lord over all, give orders to all. And well, I know of one who won't obey him. So what if the gods made him a great spearman? How does that entitle him to hurl abuse at me? Yes, brilliant Achilles interrupted. What a worthless coward I'd be called if I were to submit to you and follow every order you happen to give. You can order around other men, but not me. I have no intention to obey you. One other thing I will tell, and you hear it to heart. I won't do battle for that girl, neither will you nor any man alive. You gave her, you'll take her. But everything else that is mine is by my black ship. Not one bit of it can you seize against my will. Go on, try it, so that all the men here will see how quickly your black blood will run down my spear. 
So these two finished their battle of words and stood up, breaking up the assembly of Achaeans by their fast ships. Achilles returned to his ship and to his shelter with Patroclos, Minoetios's son, and their comrades. And Agamemnon, son of Atreus, drew up a fast ship with twenty oarsmen, and loaded it with cattle for sacrifice to the gods, and set on board Chryseus of the Fair Cheeks. Leading her was clever Odysseus, in charge of the vessel. All embarked, the party launched into the sea's foaming ways, while Agamemnon, the son of Atreus, told his men to wash themselves and purify themselves of the filth of the plague. They scoured it off, throwing the scourings into the surf, and accomplished perfect sacrifices to Apollo the god, and the savory smoke went up to heaven, swirling in the sky. So the men were engaged and kept busy, but Agamemnon, still angry, made a threat to Achilles through his two heralds, Talthebius and Eurybates. Both of you go to Achilles' shelter and take Briseis of the fair cheeks by the hand. Bring her back here, and if he refuses, I will come in person with an entire army. That'll be the worst for him. So under his authority, they went by the shore of the barren salt sea and came to the ships and shelters of the Myrmidons. They found Achilles sitting grimly beside his tent, no joy in his heart at seeing them. The two heralds quaked in terror at awe of the king and stayed silent until the son of Peleus spoke. Welcome, heralds, messengers of Zeus and mortals, come on. It's not you I blame, but Agamemnon who sent you for the girl Briseis. Patroclus, go bring her out and hand her over so they can take her back. But you heralds, do witness me declaring, along with all the gods of all men and all kings, that if here, hereafter, there shall be need of me to save the Achaeans from stark defeat, then he is raving mad. He lacks the wit to know past from present and know who is the only one that will keep the Achaeans fighting safely by their ships. So he spoke, and Patroclus obeyed his beloved companion. He led Briseis forth and gave her to be taken back, and so she went unwillingly. Achilles was weeping, and he moved off from his comrades, and sat far away by the shore of the heaving gray sea. His teary eyes scanned across the endless ocean, fixing on the deep, narrowing into the foam down below, when he stretched out his arms and said, Mother! Mother who bore me for such a short life! Thundering Zeus of the Immortals should have at least given me honor for how few years my short life will be. But now he gives me nothing. Atreus' son Agamemnon humiliated me during assembly, took my prize for himself. And as he prayed, tears falling into the water, his mother Thetis heard him seated next to the old man of the sea. Suddenly she rose up from the salty green depths, emerging like mist from the gray water she came up, and sat beside the weeping Achilles, stroked him with her hand and spoke, Why, my child, do you lament? What sorrow has come to your heart now? Don't hide it. Tell me. We must share it all. You know, you know already, you are all knowing, why must I labor through it all again and say? We went against Thebe and sacked a sacred city of Apollo and brought everything we could carry back here. The Achaeans divided up our spoils fairly, until Chryses, the priest of Apollo, came back to offer ransom for his daughter. Yet Atreus' son Agamemnon turned his back and dismissed the old man, and his god's wicked deadly arrows raged a plague through our camp. 
I was the first, mother, I was the first to urge that we appease the god. But Agamemnon, too furious, leapt to his feet and ordered the heralds to take my prize the Achaeans gave me, Briseis, the girl, in exchange for Chryseis, the priest's daughter. You, if you can come to the aid of your own son, go up to Olympus and petition Zeus. If ever you've gratified his heart with words and deeds, many times in my father's hall I... I remember hearing you make claims. You said you only among the immortals saved him from Kronos. You were the one who called for his allies against the Titans. You saved Zeus from ruin. You alone rescued him from his bonds. Remind him, sit by him, clasp his knees, persuade his mind to help the Trojans, so that Agamemnon will see his own madness in failing to honor the best of the Achaeans. Thetis wept with flowing tears and answered him, Oh, my son, my sorrow, why did I give you this life? All I bore was doom. I wish you could linger by your ships without grief, without torment, but doomed to such a short life you are, short of years but long of sorrow. Woe I was to bore you. Nevertheless, I will go to the snowy heights of Olympus and tell Zeus your prayer, but sit tight, stay in your rage for days, twelve days. Zeus yesterday went out to the ocean to visit the loyal Ethiopians for a feast, and all the other gods went with him. In twelve days he'll come back, and then I shall go to his house with its bronze floor and clasp his knees. Then I think I can win him over. Meanwhile, Odysseus made landfall near Chryses, and brought out the oxen for a holy sacrifice. When they steered into the harbor, they furled their sails, stowing it inside the hollow ship. They lowered the mast by the forestays, lowered it into their crutch carefully and smoothly, casting out anchor stones and hitching them to stern cables. And then they themselves disembarked on the seashore and landed the oxen for the hecatomb. Chryseis disembarked, led by the hand of silver-tongued Odysseus, who escorted her to the altar, put her in the arms of her dear father, and addressed him. Chryses, said he, we have been sent by King Agamemnon to bring you back your child and to offer to Apollo a holy sacrifice on behalf of the Danaeans to appease your god who has now brought such sorrows upon us Argives. So he spoke and delivered Chryseis, the priest's dear child. And now they rinsed their hands and ranged oats of barley over the oxen, the holy hecatomb, orderly arranged around the altar of the god. Chryses lifted up his arms and prayed out loud, Oh, hear me, god of the silver bow divine. Rule Thebe and protect Chryses we incline. Thy plague-field arrows inflict a raging pest, and burning with vengeance we sacrifice for request. Once more attend us, Avert thy wasteful woe, and smile propitious, unbend thy bow. So he prayed, and Phoebus Apollo heard. Once more they scattered barley oats over the oxen, pulling back the victims' heads and slaughtering and flaying them. They cut away the meat from the thigh bones, wrapping it in fat, making a double fold, and layered shreds of meat on top of meat. The old man spitted and roasted these over dried split wood and poured a skin of rich wine over the meat. They tasted the vital organs and cut them into pieces, piercing them, spitting them over fire. When the work was done and the feast laid out, they all ate well, and no man's hunger was denied a fair portion. 
When their desire for eating had been put away, the young men filled mixing bowls with pure wine and handed it round, tipping first drops for the god in everyone's goblet, and then water to mix with the wine. So their libations were poured, equally distributed. All day long they sung and danced in worship of Apollo, raising a ringing hymn to the distant deadly archer, and Apollo listened. The god's heart warmed with joy. The sun went down and darkness came on. They laid down to sleep by the morning cables of their ship, and when dawn shone once more with her rose-red fingers, they sailed forth to sea back to the Achaean camp. Phoebus Apollo sent them a fair headwind into their mast and hoisted their sails high and wide. A strong bow wave sang loud around the vessel's cut water, and the fast ship ran, slicing through the billows, beaching the ship ashore onto the moist sand, where they propped posts against the hull, setting it high onto the beach, the men disembarking and dispersing into their various huts and vessels. But Achilles, aboard his ship, nursed his anger, raging it on. For days he stayed absent from the Achaeans' assemblies, where men debate and gain renown. For days he never went to join them in fighting, but gnawed at his own wasting heart, withdrawn, bitter for missing the war cry and for missing combat. Twelfth dawn from that first day broke. The gods of Olympus assembled all together, led by Zeus of the councils, and Thetis did not forget the charge her son had laid upon her. So she rose from the sea and up to great heaven at early morning to Olympus, where the loud thundering Olympian son of Kronos was found among the rest, perched on the topmost peak of the topmost mountain. She sat before him and placed her left hand on his knees, her right hand touching him beneath the chin. Father Zeus, if ever I did you help by words or deeds for the immortals, hear my wish and do honor to my son Achilles, whose life is fated to be so short-lived. The lord of men Agamemnon dishonored him by taking his prize and keeping her. Honor him then yourself, O lord of counsel, and steer your hand towards helping the Trojans. Give them the edge in battle, at least until the Achaeans pay my son what he is due, and load him with glittering gifts boundless in store." Zeus sat for a while, and quite troubled. Thetis still kept firm of her hold and besought him a second time. Promise me, nod your head or say no, you have nothing to fear. Show me if you care, so I may learn how I am the most dishonored of all the gods. Zeus, who gathered the clouds, addressed her. This is a nasty business you have brought me. You'll get me in trouble with my wife, Hera. Constantly she nags and abuses me with her taunting, accusing me of helping the Trojans too much already. Now go, lest Hera finds out. I will consider the matter, and I will bring it about as you ask. See now, I'll even nod my head to make sure you believe me. No promise of mine I'll revoke or unfulfill if I nod and assent to it. And the son of Kronos bowed his dark brows, the ambrosial locks swaying as he shook his immortal head, shaking all of Olympus along with it. 
The two parted from each other, Thetis going back to the depths and Zeus to his dwelling. And when Zeus stood, so too did all the other gods rise together. Not one of them dared to remain seated. All stood up as he came in. But his wife Hera had been glancing at the two, and she was aware that Thetis, the daughter of the sea, had been scheming. And so she addressed him with mocking words. Which of the gods are you conspiring with now, O cunning schemer? You always leave me out, hatching these secret matters behind my back. Never have you told me not once of your intentions. Hera, do not expect to know all my thoughts. Though my wife you may be, this situation is much too complicated, and once it is fitting to hear, there will be no one of gods or mortals who will hear it before you. When it comes to us divinities needing to keep our knowledge confidential, you must not pry or ask questions. Then to him the oxide lady Hera spoke. Most dreaded son of Kronos, what are you speaking? Me, pry and presk and ask intrusive questions? Never. Before now I have never pressed, up to a fault. You go out and do whatever you go out and do. But now I fear you've been won over by that sea nymph Thetis. I saw her with you this morning, her hands on your knees. I believe you promised her to meddle in that little war down there. But the both of you will get so many men killed by the interventions. You are so full of fancy. I try and keep a secret, but you still suspect me and find out. But you will gain nothing from this. I've only come to dislike you more. If that is my business, then I have my reasons. So sit down, be quiet, obey my words, and do as I tell you. Not all of the gods on Olympus can help you once I lay my immortal hands on you. So he spoke, and fear gripped the oxide lady Hera. She sat down in silence and bent her heart over into submission, as did all the other gods in fear of their cloud-shaking father. Hephaestus, god of the workshop, was the first to speak up. This is a nasty business we have here, something not to be born of us immortals. Quarreling down there for the sake of mortals and all us brawling up here for the sake of gods, it'll spoil our feast. Come on, mother, cheer up. I love you dearly and would hate to see you getting a thrashing. But it can't be helped, can it? What with him being Zeus, Lord of the Almighty and all. Gotta be so polite and proper, he'll just toss us right off, will he not? So saying this, Hephaestus sprung up and passed a two-handed goblet to his mother Hera. Cheer up. Least we don't have much trouble making the best of him. One time I did something or another to send him off his rocker. He tossed me by the foot down to that miserable earth. All day long I plummeted as the sun was setting. I finally landed on Lemnos. The nice little folk there took care of me. Which ones were those? The, the Cynicians, Seleucians, Scythians? So he spoke, and the goddess white-armed Hera smiled, receiving her cup in one hand and passing it from left to right to the other gods, and eventually humor was carried across their table too. As the Olympians laughed and applauded the crook-legged god Hephaestus' stories, and also at his hobbling. 
Then thereafter, for the whole day long until the sun set, they feasted, nor was anyone's hunger denied a fair portion, nor were they denied the beautifully strung lyre Apollo was strumming, nor the lovely voices of the singing muses. Then, when the sun's glorious light went down, they all went into their own houses, each one built by the far-famed craftsman god Hephaestus. Olympian Zeus crawled into his bed, where sleep always overtook his head, with white-armed Hera of the Golden Throne laying beside him. Thank you for listening to Book One of the Iliad. I'd like to include a brief commentary at the end of every book to help explain some of the more obscure references, awkward turns of phrases, and the historical context, for the sake of first-time listeners who may have never taken a serious stab at going through this first major work of Western literary history. The great grandpappy of virtually all the tropes, cliches, and formulaic archetypes that still stimulate the modern imagination to this day. From all the classic war stories, to convoluted medieval fantasy stories, to expanded superhero universes, to role-playing adventure systems, to swashbuckling pulpy serials. But the Iliad is hardly the birth of campy entertainment. It is, by all its own rights, not even just an overwhelmingly impressive work of literary genius. The Iliad directly impacted the course of foundational academic studies, world-changing shifts in religious dogma, historical state decisions over war and peace, and arguably even the birth of Greek philosophy itself. But like any good fantasy story, the Iliad works so effectively because it immerses listeners into a mystical alien world. But the overwhelmingly detailed humanity of that world brings with it the realization that, as a work of historical fiction during his own time, Homer's world is really our own. Studying Homer is an entire career. It is impossible for one person to know everything going on here. And even the oldest surviving medieval manuscript of the Iliad from a thousand years ago still has pages of scholarly notes scribbled into the margins, as messy and complicated as a book splattered with spilled spaghetti. Just like with the Bible... Every single sentence is numbered and annotated. Countless generations of scholars have spent their entire careers debating on the precise translation of every single word. And for those who today, just like in centuries past, have Homer memorized by heart, I apologize. I've taken liberties in my version with the audience of first-time listeners on YouTube or Spotify or some such platform in mind, rewriting this epic line by line and steering the characters and language in a way that I hope attracts a new audience into loving this work just as much as millions of people throughout all of human history have. I've taken inspiration from some of the more modern popular translations, alongside some poetry from Alexander Pope's iambic pentameter version from 1715. I've made something that will sound absolutely familiar, but just unique enough to count as a new transformative version, because even Homer is not safe from capitalism and copyright. 
I also paid so much attention to sound design and voice acting because the Iliad is not meant to be read silently. Lucky for lovers of audiobooks, it was always meant to be performed out loud, at poetry festivals, where the poem's dactylic hexameter conveyed the rising and falling and crashing of sea waves, the pushes and pulls and retreats and then decisive blows of battle lines, and other such rhythms that are actually impossible to accurately translate into English. This is why every translation of the Iliad is quite different from each other. When translators make a translation of the Iliad, they'll combine a number of ancient historical fragments, including that 1,000-year-old Byzantine Codex, to reconstruct an official, approved, standardized version that was current circa 150 BC according to records from the Library of Alexandria. And the first word of that Greek version will always be menin, for wrath, or anger, or rage. But grab any English version, and you're rolling a 50% chance of that word being sing instead, before the translator jumps into the next big debate over whether the correct word for Achilles' emotion should be wrath, rage, or anger. And then next, is it the will of Zeus being fulfilled, or the plan of Zeus? Were great souls, fighter souls, or hero souls left behind for the dogs and birds? The poem itself is older than the English language, so if you put any two English translations side by side, they will never, ever perfectly match up. Greek grammar is so different from English grammar that words can be rearranged liberally while still saying the same thought. A reminder that people who work in the localization business are constantly trying to hammer home to the popular audience, that there really is no such thing as a perfect machine translation. So with that in mind, I'm not aiming to tell it the way the Greeks would have told it, nor have you imagine it the same way the Greeks would have imagined it. But I absolutely, positively, want you to be as captivated and enthralled as the Greeks would have been. But no matter which version of the Iliad you're reading or hearing, you'll encounter a lot of outdated references and strange names and odd redundancies, used by the original Greek poets as synonyms to keep the glue of their rhythm bound together. So let's get started. If you hear the words Achaeans, Danaeans, or Argives, those are all roughly synonymous with Greeks. However, this poem takes place so far back in history that the concept of a collective Greek identity didn't really exist yet. It only arguably begins here, with Agamemnon assembling what is thought here to be a temporary alliance of city-states that is collectively called the Achaeans, Danaeans, or Argives. Likewise, the city of Troy on the other side of the front is also called Ilium or Ilios, and the greater regional area the city of Troy is located in is Lycia, its inhabitants Lycaeans. On a modern map, that's the Mediterranean shoreline of northwestern Turkey. The Trojans will also be called Dardanians, after the nearby sea strait of the Dardanelles. So, to also fit the rhythm of his poetry, Homer will sometimes be calling the Trojans Lycaeans or Dardanians. Further complicating things is the fact that the Iliad is just the second installment of an eight-part series detailing much more of the drama behind the entire Trojan War. The Iliad actually just covers a handful of Trojan War characters over a handful of weeks. In part one, the Achaeans assembled this alliance together to recover Helen, a princess of the Greek city-state of Sparta who was stolen away from her king by the handsome, boisterous Prince Paris, who will sometimes also be called Alexandros, referencing something of a nickname he was known by before entering the royalty class in that earlier installment, part one, which has now been lost. 
Whether or not Helen went consensually by her own will changes from story to story from one version to the next, but in Homer's version, she doesn't exactly seem like an unwilling captive. Greek mythology had no established canon, and the religious dogma was more concerned with nailing the precise procedure of public sacrifices, rituals, and feasts and festivals than it was over the precision word choice of their sacred stories, all of which owe to those stories being created in a time before formalized, systematized, state-sponsored writing systems. As works of memorized and spoken poetry, much of the redundancy, repetition, and lengthy asides and substories you'll hear were simply practical tools of a trade to keep a poet's mind focused on what's to come several lines ahead of what the muscle memory of their mouths would be reciting. But that doesn't mean that the ancient poets weren't capable of drawing their plot outlines visually, or developing their own personal or professional systems of symbols to keep track of which character goes where and which events happen when. One of the most staggering historical implications of Homer's popularity is how close the alleged dating of his alleged authorship, which would have been the 700s or 800s BC, roughly correlates with the decades when a proper Greek alphabet started being adopted, 700s or 800s BC. It's quite possible that the ancient Greeks developed their own alphabet for the purposes of, or at least the practices coming from, recording Homer. Our modern-day Latin alphabet directly descends from the systems that were being made in Homer's time. The ancient Greek alphabet is actually a spin-off branch of the ancient Phoenician alphabet, which the Greeks imported from the Middle Eastern coastlines of the ancient Levant. Before that alphabet, and long before Homer, there was a far older flavor of ancient Greece. A version of Greece with no white fluted pillars, a Greece without the buff, naked gods chiseled out of marble. A version of Greece whose aesthetic style would be hardly recognizable to an untrained modern eye, until spotting the immortal, ever-present symbol of a bronze soldier's broomed helmet, which frequently adorns their artifacts. This older period of Greece that Homer is singing about, and its hazy origins in Bronze Age mythic prehistory, can still be heard in the nostalgic ramblings of old Nestor, who mingled with a generation of mythological characters from even older, more anonymously authored mythmakers. Nestor is from the generation of Icarus and Daedalus, Theseus and the Minotaur, and of King Midas and the Golden Touch. Simpler, shorter moral myths with a bit more of a supernatural element to them, but just like Homer's myths, they include characters directly communicating to their gods. That setting, that historical period that Homer's historical fiction evokes, is a period the archaeologists call the Mycenaean period, circa 1600s to 1100s BC, and the hazy supernatural prehistory that the Greeks were mythologizing comes from them emerging out of a dark age of forgotten knowledge. The kingdoms of Agamemnon and Odysseus and Nestor, the kingdoms of Mycenaean Greece, had their own systems of writing, but it was all destroyed and forgotten. And by Homer's time, that link of direct communication between humans and their gods had also been broken. The artwork I've associated with Book 1 here is called the Pelos Combat Agate, which was found in the tomb of a Mycenaean warrior buried circa 1450s BC. 
It's remarkably beautiful and prophesizes what Greek art would start looking like 600 years later, and it anachronistically contradicts a lot of previous assumptions about just how early the ancient world would have been able to create artwork so intricate and detailed. It's only about one and a half inches across. When the archaeologists first dug it up, they thought it was a bead, as it was covered by a dull deposit of limestone before they started carving away to uncover the gorgeous beauty beneath. It probably required some kind of magnifying lens to make, but it is dated to a period from before those were assumed to be around. One clever low-tech solution they could have used was keeping drops of water on top of curved glass to magnify the detail work, while assistants would be pumping away at human-powered dremels and drills. It so perfectly resembles the modern cliches of Homer's exaggerated heroics that the cynic in me almost doesn't want to believe it. But a hoax is not likely to have happened here. The excavation was done by a public university with their transparent methods published online to everybody. It was originally used as a seal stone before becoming a burial offering. But it's not likely that this artwork was made by the Mycenaean Greeks. They weren't exactly known for being skilled at the humanities. They did have a writing system, sure, but it wasn't a very exciting one. It was used almost exclusively for keeping inventory records or issuing orders. The archaeologists and Homer both agree that the Mycenaeans were pirates, a more brutal warrior society from a more primitive, violent time and place. Though he does glorify their heroism and their masculine bravado and virility, he also reflects with complete empathetic tragedy over the consequences of living under such a system. The Mycenaean civilization collapsed as violently as it operated, ending with a foreign invasion from some other violent warmongering clan. The current consensus is that this minutely carved jewel found in a Mycenaean grave actually came from the Minoan civilization, from across the sea on the island of Crete. There's no dominant theory on exactly how it got there. It could have been traded, it could have been custom-ordered, or, like Homer's Achaeans on their way to Troy, it could have been plundered during one of their overseas campaigns against a foreign culture. But like I mentioned earlier, Homeric studies is a fragmented discipline full of controversies, assumptions, and arguments that have not yet been settled. We're only barely scratching the surface. The questions over whether or not Homer actually existed, and whether or not the Trojan War existed, will be covered in the next chapter, along with the discussion over that connection between the ancient Greek gods and human psychology. I hope you enjoyed this, and I hope you'll stick with it. Thanks again to Epidemic Sound for their library of music and sound effects. The musicians you heard in this episode were Rand Also, Farrell Wooten, Fabian Tell, Trevor Kowalski, and Gabriel Lucas. I'd also like to give a full acknowledgement and thanks to all the modern translators of Homer, from Robert Fagels to Richard Lattimore to Caroline Alexander to Peter Green. And I'd especially like to give a big thank you to my Patreon supporters who made this project possible which include Joel Jacobson, son of Jacob, Seb Eater, devourer of beer, Tom Webster of the Many Words, Joe Baggs, who holds many things, Russell Callender of Godlike Punctuality, Ask Joe Batune, the most harmonious one, Zach Schuster, teller of tales, Marty Quinlan, friend of all healers, Quiddle Sticks, he who loves all animals, J.P.U., the most mysterious of deities, a. Cody Shufelin, who dances every day. Occluded Chungus, voracious consumer of carrots. 
Graham White, baker of crackers. Irwin Unate, lover of the spiced meat. Jason McClung of the far-flung tongue. Jeffrey Paul, wise financier of funds. Pat Delaney, who is correct in all things. Michael Russell, fearsome at games of tennis. And finally, there was Emil Olberg of impeccable judgment. <laughs>